Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Richard Holmes of Big Rich Films and VoxBox. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I I came across you at a Masterclass event a long while ago. Uh, you were talking about how to make a million pound or how to make a film under a million pound, and you used the movie you, you produced, uh, Eden Lake, as, 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 as like a case study, I think, remember rightly. I, I, well, I hope I didn't because that certainly was a little bit more than a million quid. Um, it wasn't a lot more, but I think it was about two. Okay, well, but my memory <laughs> of you talking about Eden Lake then on that was, right, was, I a, did, yeah. was about continuity and it always stuck with me every time I rewatch it because you cited an example where people are going, well, it's not the right foliage. It's not the right foliage. And you're going, we're in the woods. I, I, I did. I, I got into real trouble for this on another film, which I'll talk to you about. But on that, you know, it got so intense. And I did say, you know, a tree is a fucking tree yeah. is a fucking tree. Because I said, if this point, if they're looking at the leaves while some kids being burned, where, you know, we've lost them completely. Anyway, I used the adage to try and get another job on a film, which I did manage to secure, called The Ritual, where I was a producer for hire. Okay. And it was, a, you know, I do see it's a really well made horror film, but it's in saw the woods. It, saw it at the cinema. Oh, very nice. Thank you very much. Um, and, you know, I did say to the director, you know, a, a tree is if I can, you know, as a kind of like, ha, ha, ha. And he, a really nice guy who I still have very, very fond of, David Bruckner. He just kind of like went, he just pursed his lips slightly. And, and actually, he used trees in a completely different way. So I should have just bitten my lip. Yeah. Um, he used trees as sort of mood. And I didn't, I mean, I'm not a director. And I, you know, but once he explained to me what he needed and why, I was much more... Uh, sympathetic to his desire to find the right kind of leaf <laughs> than I was than I was in the middle of the blood and guts of Eden Lake. But yeah, I mean, I, there is a certain pragma- pragmatism to filmmaking. Occasionally, you just got to realise that you know, the audience isn't going to be looking at that. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I think it was Ridley Scott said something on the lines of somebody said we can see a reflection in a, in a in a in a wheel hub or something. He said yeah. if the audience are noticing a reflection in a wheel hub. <laughs> Uh, we've lost them. Yes. But the beauty of today's filmmaking is that if there's a reflection of the wheel hub, it just, we will actually take it out in post. Fix it in post. I, I, it's, yeah, it, 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 I mean, it's true. You know, you can get rid of all those things. I remember that when I first used digital, I made a film called Resistance, which is set in the Second World War in Wales. Yeah. And we were, you know, you, you, see, you try and see rushes on the big screen as much as you can, but it was the first sort of digital thing I'd done properly. And I remember being in the final grade and it was a big wide and the grader went, someone's having a, a sandwich in a car. <laughs> <laughs> about, about a quarter of a mile away. And it was like, for me, because I'm you know, old school, I went, oh no. You know, so, and he went, 
you know, he just sort of penciled it out. And Seriously? It, you know, he took enough out of it <clears throat> to, to just make it something else. It was, you know, it was pixels really anyway, but you could see that they were actually having a sandwich in the car. But yeah, so all those those issues, which used to be catastrophic, and mm. that were opticals. And if you remember, if you were old enough, to, you know, if you can see opticals in old films, because they literally the quality of the, of the film, you know, degrades twenty percent and then comes back again when the optical is finished. But you know, that just that simply doesn't happen anymore. Ugh. Well, well, that is that's a roundabout way of yes. <laughs> of me saying that's when I first came across you hearing you talk. I mean, obviously, I'd seen your yeah. films, I'd seen even like well before. Uh, well, before I've seen you speak. Um, and today we're going to talk about three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. But before we do that, we want to talk about a new project you're involved with, which is kind of adjacent to film. It's audio, isn't it, is what we're, we're doing. And It is. And I, I mean, I just wanted to stress that um, yeah, my day job is producing and, I, and I'm producing something, you know, developing something with the BFI, producing something with Film 4, all of which I'm, you know, takes up my day but i've always been a sort of maker you know i've always done stuff with my hands mostly okay. mostly repairing and if i'm being very honest mostly not true you know as in not straight and and at right angles you know like sheds which mm. aren't quite true but um i do i've always you know, enjoyed making stuff and during lockdown i did that typical thing of you know, growing my beard and learning how to make bread and learning how to sew and all these things as it as it staggered on hmm. and one of the projects was sort of thrust on me which is my daughter uh, was at Manchester doing music and she came back in her second year and she was absolutely flying she was she was destined to get a first hmm. and all of a sudden she was sort of thrown out of university with all sorts of projects to deliver um, and she's a singer-songwriter and so I built her as I you know built pe- build people things a little well it, I call it a little she hated it because it was so big but a, a booth that was made out of the plywood acoustic foam and packing blankets in which she could put a laptop and a microphone and do her project. And it, it worked in principle. In other words, it killed reverb and it made it sound decent, yeah. but she absolutely hated it because it was smelly and it was, you know, she didn't have a very big room and it just took over the room. So it, it was used, but resentfully and it went into a skip, you know, when she went back to university. So I forgot about it really. And then my son sounds like, you know, the, um, on traps here my son is a he's a he's a bbc radio for comedy producer now but he's also a comedian and he did that thing i bless him he actually did it he went well i'm gonna write a book i've always wanted to write a book so i'm gonna suck at home i'm actually and he actually wrote a book you know it's extraordinary really and my wife who's an actress said you know if if the book turns into something that's readable i'll read it so i built another booth for her and i didn't want to build a big smelly one so i built one out of acoustic foam right. is that very brightly coloured closed cell phone, which again really works. Mm. And I've got the sort of two, you know, the uh, two centimetre versions or two and a half. So, you know, I built another version of the box, but this one I I realised that if I cut it a clever way and taped it a certain way, I didn't have to keep it as a box. It would kind of fold in on itself like a concertina. Okay. And my, and my wife used it and she hated it as well because it was really wobbly and it, and it also smelled. <laughs> Of chemicals, so it was, you know it was a limited duration. You could you could, uh, you could stay in it, but it, again, the principle worked. But I couldn't just I just couldn't get the hinges right, and it smelled and everything. So again, I put sort of put that away, and it was just sort of the thing the thing Dad had made once or twice during the uh, lockdown period, and the sort of eureka moment for me. And it, it's the same in film when you kind of get over a story problem or a financing problem, whatever it might be, it all starts to come together. Is a my, one of my oldest friends, and I've known over fifty years. 
as well as being an artist and a furniture maker and everything, he is an internationally known interior designer for offices. Oh, wow. So, like, you know, Google, Microsoft, that sort of stuff. And I went to visit him, and he'd made this window blind out of this amazing stuff called PET felt, which is a, which is a felt, but made out of plastic bottles, 60% plastic bottles. Oh, and it's wow. kind of a, it looks like a thick felt, but it's incredibly rigid, and it's acoustic, and it can cut, you can cut it really cleanly, but you can't tear it. Anyway, it was like, you know, and Nick, what is that? And he, you know, told me what it was and how to do it, and he introduced me to his company. And so I remade my third box with all these kind of cuts and it didn't smell and it was incredibly effective at killing reverb. I'm, I'm in one now on a mobile phone and I, I think you'll agree it's a dry sound. No, it's lovely. Um, yeah, and it, and it also has a pretty profound influence on decibel noise as well. So anyway, I, made, I, I went into prototyping and I made a, a bunch of them and that's where we are now. So we just launched the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. If you look up Voxbox on Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, and our social media handles are at Voxbox Portable because that's what it is. It you know it won't be better than what you have set up there, Stuart, because because you've got a permanent setup. Mm. But if you if you're either starting out or you're forced by living in where most people live in small places with other people that people don't want to sacrifice a you know the sofa or the duvets or the kitchen table, you know it pops up in fifteen seconds, it collapses in five seconds, and it will go behind a door, and it'll go it'll go into the boot of a car. So if you are a if you ever had to do one of these, you know, caught short and you're remotely located and you know you're going to be in a hotel, if you put one in your car, it will at least sound dry and consistent. You know what I mean? So, mm. so it, has, it has utility and that's why I'm very proud of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I know plenty of actors who during, during lockdown, voiceover and, and reading books and things like that yeah. became something they could do at home because COVID yeah. meant they were stuck indoors yeah. but record their voice and then... They were improvising with what they could, you know, do, like you say, duvets is, a, is a often a, you know, and it's not comfortable when it's hot to be sat under a duvet for hours at a time. And that was my kind of parallel um, inspirations. My, yeah, my wife, you know, used to love Twitter and it was a big thing for her during lockdown, a way of communicating. And she built up a substantial following here, you know, like 45,000 followers. And one day she said to me, have you seen these? And she started showing me pictures of, you know, actors, performers, um, podcasters, journalists under the duvet or, or in a sofa cushion studio that they built, you know, on a kitchen table. Mm. And I thought, well, actually, this is a, this is actually a problem that I could, if I could get this bloody thing right, it, that it, I could get into a solution. So that was the other side. And it has been very interesting that the people so far who pledged on Kickstarter, most of them I don't know, but most of them are the profile that I first saw in lockdown of people just going, I don't want to have duvet head anymore. You know, I don't want to be, you know, airless. I just want something that works, but I, I can't afford or I don't want to sacrifice, you know, a permanent part, part of my house to it. So when people go to the Kickstarter, what, yeah. what is it? Is it a straightforward purchase or is there kind of d- degrees of purchase? Kickstarter runs on a thing called a pledge. Okay. So you'll see my lovely face pitching you my box. Yeah. And uh, there's other support videos and stuff. And then... There's an option of, of sort of, of pledge, they call it pledging. So there's, you can buy for a discount, it's a retail price, of course, because it's Kickstarter. You can pledge to buy uh, a box, a box box, and it, it, your pledge will only be cool, as in cashed, when I've raised my full amount, which is an ambitious 45 grand. And I'm sort of 18% through it now after just a, a week and a bit. Okay. So I'm, so 
it's only if I raise my capital through the pledges mm. that your money will be called. And if it is, then I can go into production. I've got a, I've got a minimum order quantity. In order to take it to the price, I've got to order 500. Okay. And that's expensive. So that's why I need to raise the capital. Yeah. So, and then if it, if it works, then you'll be getting your vault box in sort of late November. Well, before Christmas is my rational ambition. And we're recording this Wednesday, 26th of July. So yeah. 2023. So what's the closing date for the, for the Kickstarter? It's the end of August. End of August. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's well, that's, I, and thank you for having me because it's weird. You know, I'm 60 years old and I've been a film, film producer all my adult life, yeah. really, all my working life at least. It's very odd that something that, you know, it's still a hobby. It's, still, it's what I do on the evenings and weekends and mm. more, early mornings sometimes. But, you know, it's to, to turn something which is, which is actually turned into a product. And there was a moment with my friend Nick who, who, who advised me, when, you know, because he is a designer and he went, yeah, it's now a product, Richard. And that was so exciting. It's like when a, so bring it back to film, you know, it's like when you're developing and developing and developing and all of a sudden you kind of think, yeah, I can send this out. I can send the script out and people will read it as if it's not the first draft or the third draft. It's, it's a, it's a you, you can see it being made. For a lovely thing, but 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 also it plays it plays to the type of the producer, which is the the idea of the problem solver. And it was like you, it may not have been films you were solving, but you saw a problem and instinct was to try and solve it. You know, obviously it starts with your daughter's journey, but obviously then it becomes something more that you're wrestling with. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of similarities in terms of you know any kind of building, making, and filmmaking. You know, I've done parallels before, but yeah, they're definitely there. I think the unique, the unique thing about this, and what's so weird for me, is I can, I've got, yeah, I've got this late state prototype that I'm in now showing you. You know, it's mm. it's it's a pretty good prototype. I went to the podcast show and I put it up and down two hundred times over two days, and I've had the hinges tested by Intertech. You know, so they, it's a very durable thing, but it's a thing, and that's so weird. You know, film, you know, you do have a script, which is a thing, but it's mm. it's completely intangible till the moment that you sort of you know yeah, run yeah. off your fair copy and, and screen it. And to, ha- to be able to show people, say, you know, look, at this, take that out of a bag and pop it up and then put it away. I, I can't tell you the, 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 the difference in, in, that, in that emotion that it conjures because I've made a thing. Uh, you know, so for me, again, at the age of 60, to go from being sort of an intellectual property person mm. to being a product designer, yeah, I'm not really, but you know, pro- having done a, designed a product is very different. No, no, congratulations! I think it's uh, it's 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 interesting to have just to, to have heard the journey because there's there's one thing to go. I'm going to build a thing that's going to help people get better acoustics, but actually, there was a genuine evolution where it was just I was thinking about a, a specific problem, but then it grew into actually no, there's a wider application for this. There is a wider, and and I now think there's a market because since we launched the Kickstarter, I've had two retail, you know, sort of DJ type supplies, sound sound supplies, yeah, coming to me, and I've had um, CNN said. This very nice guy I met at the podcast show. He he literally stopped me. He went, do that again, and he put his head in. He went, oh wow. He went, my boss in New York is making this right now out of hexagon squares, and it's smelly and it doesn't work. And this is exactly what we need. And you know, Lewis Goodall at, at LBC was just you know he came over and again popped it up for him, and he went, Tom, my producer, Tom, Tom, come. This is exactly what we need when we travel. So you know, the the the, the vaulting ambition, Stuart, is that it you know. I, I love my customers, obviously, and my customers are my customers. But what I need is sort of corporations to go, you know, we should have some of those in, in, in stock or, you know, educational establishments, NHS, 
um, yeah, people giving. Well, I was just thinking, thinking of your, your film junket. I mean, when I when I do them now, obviously a lot yes. more are remote, and the actor or the director is just talking to me on a laptop or or a phone. And if and if you could send them out an acoustic box and get them something towards a, like a, a better recording quality without them needing to get all kinds of microphones and whatnot. Then, and baffles and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other one is like events, you know, that if you've ever been into like the press office or the press tent at festivals or events, you know, they're, they're just a, a nightmare for sound because it's so intense. But, you know, if you put your head in here, it, it just makes it feasible. It gives the, gives the person on the other end at least the sort of the basic track to do something with rather than a nightmare where you have to, you know, slice and dice the top off and the bottom off. Indeed. Indeed. Well, look. I'll put a link in the show notes. Very nice of you. And we shall move swiftly along into three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Now, that sounds very dramatic. Um, it is It is more about sort of fond memories with film. I mean, and yeah. obviously, the list could have, I mean, I, I, I'm guessing the list could have extended well beyond three in terms of, as for someone who's been working in film for, for as long as you have. Uh, there, there has to be a love for the media for you to work in it that long, I think. Yeah. Richard has given me three films and we're going to talk about each of those films for five minutes. And when five minutes are up, we will hear this sound. That all coming through at your end. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Without further ado, then let us jump into your first choice. Uh, I'm going to do them in the order you gave them me. So first off is 1979, 1978, even the last waltz. Yes. So I am 60. So when I was a kid and started to watch films, you watch films in the cinema and then they vanished for two or three years and then they came on at Christmas and they were played maybe once or twice. And that was, that was it. I mean, the, you know, the BFI were running cultural classics and that, yes, as were some cinemas, but basically the film vanished and then video came along. And what was exciting about that? I'll get to, but it was video came along as, as a, as a, Fist fight between VHS and Beta, and the way that they the way that they got you is they said you know buy this machine and we'll give you two films. So we went down the shops and we bought a VHS, and it came back with Mash and the Last Waltz. And Mash is, you know, I watched. It was so extraordinary. I watched both films. I'm not. I try not to exaggerate. At least fifty times mm. each because I could. It was so exciting to finish the film and then rewind it and watch it again. Oh, and yes. then so oh I'll watch now I'll watch the left hand side of the screen. And now I'll watch the, the top right-hand corner. You know, you could really get into it. I think MASH is, is a flawed film now. It's very, very dated. But it was funny and I loved it. But The Last Waltz was, the, A, the first documentary I'd really ever been conscious of. Okay. B, directed by Martin Scorsese. What, has he done any other documentaries? I don't know. But it was a great piece of filmmaking. And C, had, you know, it was musical. And I'm not a big muso, but I like my music. And I'd never heard of the band. So it's uh, the, the documentary is Scorsese following the band on their sort of last set of concerts before they, well, unfortunately, before some of them started killing themselves and you know went completely nuts. But they yeah. they were sort of they were running out of speed, and so they everyone they'd ever backed and everyone they'd ever admired or admired them came to play. And there's there's one particular song which is you know the, my sort of I, my funeral song which I went and there was whether my wife ever actually agrees to play it, but it's The Wait oh, right. by the band. Yeah. And the, the, the unique, you know, so I would say it's not just The Last Waltz. It is this particular song. It's The Wait with backing from the staple singers. 
and it is it still makes the the hairs on the on my forearm um stand up it's just absolutely beautiful it's a very weird song i mean i have because i'm so into it i've looked at the lyrics and it's slightly biblical and it's slightly sort of classical references and it's a it's a bit of a it's a fractured narrative an unreliable narrator all these things in a in a what is a pretty little song but you know the the, the singers the band will take a verse and then um the lead stable sister, whose name I remember, but I don't. She she takes a, a verse as well, and the and the male staple singer takes a verse, and at the end of the whole thing, she leans forward and says, very quietly into the mic to Robbie Robinson, the the, the lead guitarist and singer, and she just goes, beautiful, just a little whisper, and it just makes me go every time. So if you get the opportunity, go onto YouTube and just look up the weight, uh, you know, a staple staple sisters singing it's just marvelous so that was my first one but oh, I've, I've undercooked just just remember so you weren't into the band when you when you no, got hold of this documentary so that's in i mean that speaks to a time when that that idea of just being able to choose to watch something i mean it's something i vividly remember of like we watched jaw we watched jaws at a friend's house that was my first vhs experience and we did exactly what you said we could we well, let's watch it again then yeah. And we and, and nobody could stop us. We'd we'd watch Top of the Pops that we'd recorded off the TV on a Friday, which blew my tiny mind. The idea that Thursday seven o'clock could now be any time you want if you recorded the Thursday seven o'clock. Yeah. So why why uh, remind me? So why why are you choosing a documentary that that you didn't know? I suppose the band? because you know it, it represents a moment in time. It was really two films. You know that that. All of a sudden, you could realize that you could watch them again and again, and you could become your own kind of analyst of film narrative and you know and and, and photography and pace and editing and all. You know, you you could also kind of you, you had the opportunity to really delve and get mm. into the film. So, so I suppose it's it's that particular film because it was my the first time I was aware of documentary, mm. you know, and and how I thought well that's just. You know, documentary is like um, you know crime watch, isn't it? You know, I didn't realize that it had its own structure and form and and emotion and it could, you know and 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 the hooks. There, sorry, there's one other great moment where Neil Young, who's in terrible trouble, obviously at this point, you know, deep into heroin, and he comes out and he does not look well, and he's tuning up um, for his track. And and he's um, and he starts. Uh, you know, tuning up for his guitar and it's not plugged in. And, you know, the band just off go, oh my God, we've left him naked. And Brody comes on and shoves in the thing and, and it starts and he starts playing and he leans forward into camera and he turns to Robbie Robertson. He goes, they've got it now, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> my family's. It's time for another season of the Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find the Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Still use that that line if someone repairs a problem. They've got it now, Robbie, and it's so so sinister. Um, but yeah, it's a great film, and I love it. I mean, and also what's what's interesting as for the documentary form is there's an event, so there's a narrative to the event, and then there's the documentary, which is these talking heads. Yeah, that that 
have obviously been the, the, the timeline's been messed with because it's obviously what Martin Scorsese got. Yeah. And it's almost, and if you think, you think about, you know, 1978, we're not far off MTV being launched. So then we've got no. this and, predates and punk, punk is raging. Yeah. yeah these guys are so dinosaurs. But it also predates the idea of the music video. But you've got Martin Scorsese, one of the greatest directors, yeah. making a feature length. Yeah. Music and, and obviously with obviously with at least five or six cameras. I mean, it's beautifully covered. It really is beautifully covered and beautifully mixed as well. Right then, moving swiftly into the nineties for a very different tone whatsoever. <laughs> um, <laughs> your words, not mine. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've got. Uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Tell us, tell us where this. I mean, this is a very different film than Last Walls. So, what, why, or where does this fit in your film memory? What is it that got you? Okay, so I was in town uh, between meetings uh, in Leicester Square, or near Leicester Square, and I thought, you know, actually, I've got just enough time to see a film if I can, you know, because I was in the like the two o'clock transition period, and there was either Police Academy Six, I think. Or this thing called Ace Ventura Pet Detective. And all I'd seen was the posters, little, and it wasn't big posters, it was like kind of a sort of dirty, quick and dirty posters that had been put up of this guy with a weird hair who had never heard of. And I thought, do you know what? I, I don't think I can face Police Academy. So I'm going to take a risk. I, be, I very rarely leave films, frankly, but I'll take a risk on Ace Ventura. And it started. And I have to say, I've, I was laughing so hard within 15 seconds that I was out of control. I just couldn't believe how funny. This opening was, which I won't ruin for you. It is worth seeing. It's Jim Carrey, pure genius. Because nothing happens. It's just wonderful. And I laughed and laughed and laughed. And then I got hold of it. And I used to watch it with my son just all the time. And it was his, I tried to introduce him to films, you know, like things I think I mentioned about Harold and Morden. He's just gone, I don't get this at all. So we used to watch, again, Ace Ventura on a loop. And we knew all the lines and, you know, it inspired him to, you know, he's now a comedian and he works for BBC Comedy as a producer you know, on the radio. Mm. You know, it was a really formative uh, film for me because, you know, I, I like making comedies. I made like things like Shooting Fish and Waking Ned. You know, I, 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 I'm a good, I think I'm a good audience. I'm an easy laugh. Yeah. But it, it showed me that, that a very simple idea, well executed with a fantastic comedic performance, could absolutely enchant and capture an audience uh, who vocalised their, their their appreciation. So I, I just absolutely loved it for that. And it was a you know, and it's kind of a family film for yeah. me, you know, for, for my family. And I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, that was um, Jim Carrey's breakout, wasn't it? That was his. It was. And by the way, the film itself is pretty terrible. The last act is 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 you know, it can only be called transphobic. It's just you know that all the jokes are at the expense of a trans person. So. I, you know, please don't watch this and hate me. Just watch the opening act, maybe the second act, where it starts getting a little bit um, uh, difficult. But uh, the opening act is just genius because the, the, the character is so unpleasant. Ace Ventura is such an idiot and and opinionated. He's not an idiot; it's actually sort of a genius, but he's opinionated and uh, it's just what we would call an ass, mm. but absolutely mesmeric. Now you said you're in between meetings, so I'm getting. So you're in, you're in London watching this film. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember where you saw what cinema you saw it at? I think it was at the Empire, or the one that's now View before it broke up into a million. Yeah. So I was just screens. thinking, you know, can you could you? I mean, we're talking nearly thirty years now, twenty nine years since. I mean, can you think about how much the the cinema landscape has changed from? 
from then to then to now? I mean, for me, going to the cinema was always, you know, a, I, I go a lot on my own. I, yeah. You know, my wife, you know, married to someone who's not particularly keen on films or or the experience of going to the cinema. So I used to go on my own a lot anyway. Um, I, you know, the, the landscape, I suppose, has changed by there being a sort of terrifying amount of choice, mm. but now a sort of, you know, a shrinking screen number. So, you know, it, I, I, you know I, I am generally a very optimistic person, but I am pretty terrified at what the sort of medium term holds for the cinema experience. Mm. And, you know, I've been to see Barbie. I'm going to see Oppenheimer. You know, it, even I am being affected by it. I'm sort of not going to as many films as I did because, you know, I've got a pretty nice screen, I've got pretty nice sound at home, don't have to deal with people chatting, you know, or, or sort of an unpre- unpredictable experience. Mm. So, you know, I, yeah, the landscape has changed utterly and I think it's in for more changes as well. I mean, I mean I've, I've recently discovered uh, the Garden Cinema by Holden Tube. I don't know if you've ventured there yet. I've seen it, but I haven't been in. It's this beautiful Art Deco cinema where it is just for the love of film. There is no phone use. There is no chattering. And for a cinema that's in the centre of London, on most days they do a £5 matinee, which is the absolute future. I mean, I can't believe it. I mean, you can. I've seen films that are played at Cannes Film Festival for a fiver in the centre of London, which is... Yeah. And the last one I saw there was uh, I saw Strange on a Train. I mean, the, the Prince Charles, bless it, you know, is the, is the one kind of funky one in town that does sort of weird, as we know, weird programming and and you know obsessive programming. Which is again, I think most most filmmakers are slightly obsessive about one or two films in their life, which they'll have watched you know dozens of times. Uh, and I I think I think that's very valuable. You know, I didn't I tried to get into film school and they wouldn't let. No, I'm not blaming them, but they didn't let me in because I just didn't fit in. But you know, before had that happened at an earlier era, I suspect I would never really learned anything. But the ability to watch films again allowed all of us to sort of work out what we liked and why. And, and you know, and if you really got into it, sort of, you know, because I used to think, what do you mean by yes, shot selection, or what do you mean by lenses, or you know, the different length, like focal lengths and all sort of stuff? How does that? And then I watched it a few times ago. Yeah, I see what they're saying. You know that. That bringing someone in and out of focus or a you know, depth of field or stuff does have a very different emotional impact, and I think that's what that's what I loved about you know VHS and then digital. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a similar experience. I got I got quite obsessed with Nicholas Wan and Reffin's Only God Forgives, and I couldn't. I mean, because it's a very it's a slow it's a short film, but it's still a slow film to most people's minds, and it's the one that followed Drive, which was this cooler than now film and everything. Yeah. And I couldn't work out or understand why I was so drawn to it. And then, you know, you look to the credits and everything, and it's the DOP's Larry Smith. And Larry Smith did Eyes Wide Shut. Larry Smith yeah. consulted on The Shining. And you go, oh, that's why. It's, it's more or less Kubrickian, almost like, yeah. in a way. And that's not an accident, because then I look back over Wine and Refn's filmography, and he's used Larry Smith regularly in his in his work. So you kind of go, oh, right. So there is, there's something in how something is shot in terms of a subjective response to you as the viewer, as much as there is the language of film. Yeah. And, and, and that language of film becomes a kind of, if you like, a sort of common language, you know, like a, like a, like almost like a dialect that we all speak. And we don't know, we don't quite know, we don't understand it, but you know, it starts to look odd if it's not there. Mm. And then every now and again, a filmmaker will come along that sort of bumps it forward a bit by use of some technique or or style, 
Uh, and then, you know, that again becomes part of the film language. And that's why some old films, you know, narratively just they just don't hold water because they just they don't they don't feel right, you know, somehow. We've moved on from not just the the storytelling or the attitudes or whatever, but it's just the filmmaking technique just doesn't hold. Right then. Um this this feels like a meta choice as much as it's probably one new to you as a producer. Uh we're, we're, we're winding back in time to 1967 to Mel Brooks. Oh, no, we, we're not. You're going to hate me. I'm going, I'm going forward to the musical. Oh, right. The actual yeah, but I will reference, obviously, the, the original. The, the original Zero Mustel version is, you know, is, um, uh, I'm going to say Gene Hackman, I mean, Gene Wilder version. Um, you know, it's still, again, right up there in the pantheon of my favourite films and you know, just, just wonderful. And, and the central premise as a producer hmm. is just so... It's just so awful and and wonderful at the same time, you know. This idea that you'll just raise more than you need to make it, and it'll be so bad, no one will think about the you know the returns. It's just genius, and I, and it must have been so exciting for him, to, you know, Mel Brooks, to come up with that. But and I, I loved it, and I've seen you know the original producers time and time again, and it's it's wonderful. The reason I choose chose the musical is for a number of reasons. Again, it's it's coming down to family mainly, but I hugely admire Mel Brooks, kind of thinking. I wonder actually if there's a if there's a musical structure in here, and I don't know anything about musicals other than there's a kind of form. It's like kabuki theatre, really. You know, you need so many songs, and you know, if your character is more than a certain impact on the story, they'll need their song or their song mm. and a half, or there's a, have to be a duet. And 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 I I just think it's 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 it feels to me as an outsider anyway a perfectly structured musical. It's also incredibly funny. I mean, it's just got some of the best lines, you know, some of which are in both. But, you know, um, that, you know I don't know if you remember, that one says, you know, why, um, why don't you like actors or something? And he goes, have you ever eaten with one? And, I, you know, my, my wife's an actress. <laughs> it's, just, it's a mad line. It doesn't mean anything other than it's just really funny, you know. Anyway, I, we, we watch, so I watch that film at least three or four times a year. My wife watches it twice a year on her birthday and on Mother's Day with more than one bottle of wine. Hmm. And then we probably, as a family, watch it two other times, sort of, you know, yeah, festivals, festivities. Uh, and it, you know, I kind of think, oh, I don't need to watch that bit. And I, as soon as it starts, I don't move. It's just, I think, wonderful. Plus, it has a sort of a really deep thing to say about friendship. And I don't think it's just male friendship. I think it's about friendship. It's about that idea of finding someone hmm. and committing to them and seeing it through, and you know, whilst what they're doing is very nefarious and you know, and uh, you know, unfair on everyone that they uh, that they rip off, you, they're still done, you know, like the like the original with such charm and wit, and you know, you want you so badly want him to succeed, succeed, you know, that Nathan, you just you just want it to work out for him once, and then he'll do the right thing, and it's sort of in the end he does, you know, he having paid his dues. That last wonderful shot, as you see his his next you know productions going off in neon into the into the darkness down Broadway, um, you know he obviously starts being a successful producer again. So anyway, for all those reasons, I just absolutely so. Love but it. but interesting then you choosing the musical over the film for the for, I know yeah. you've talked about the film there. But so what it, it, what do you think? Because usually it's the other way around. Usually the successful yeah. musical gets adapted to the big screen. That's kind of the route we go. Not not not. I mean, it has happened, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is a unique experience, but usually the trajectory is we start off on Broadway, then we go around the world selling the film to everybody, whereas this has gone 
this went to is it 2001 i think broadway was the original yeah. was the original broadway yeah. i've never seen it on stage by the way it's not i'm not very interested in in musicals ah, the, okay okay the theater it's just it's just the film I, I think you know. I, I remember hearing about it when it was to be a musical. I thought, oh, God, really? That, that feels like you're sort of you know mm. trying to mine something. So I didn't see it. I sort of rejected it, and I was not keen on watching the film version of the musical. But it's perfect. It is a perfect film. I mean, and, and as you've mentioned it already, Prince Charles obviously play this. You can you can go to a sing along for uh, mm. for the producers and the music. Both of you sort of you know the original springtime for hit the tunes, of course, is in there. But the 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 musical numbers are, you know, that, that all I do know about musicals is the kind of trope or cliche where, you know, you 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 sing because you can't go anywhere else, mm. and he absolutely sticks to that uh, rule. And so you're never ever thinking, why are they singing? You know, and what they sing is is just incredibly witty, and and the tunes are good. You know, the tunes you remember, it's just great. I mean, interestingly, John August and uh, Craig Mazzano do the Script Notes podcast. I don't know if you've listened to that before. Um, they're, they're big fans of the musical, and and John August actually adapted his film Big Fish to become a, a musical. He he worked on the adaptation from film to thingy, and and they talk a lot about the the musical form from a screenwriting point of view, and how you know the songs are there for the. I am, you know, I am me moment, this is me moment and all that, which you couldn't do in normal drama because the song allows you that that leeway to be, yeah. to be. I mean, for what of expression, on the nose. Yes. But it yes. doesn't, but that doesn't, in a good musical, that doesn't detract from from the storytelling. It, it, it's, it's, it's part of the form. Yeah. I, I'm, now, I'm now sort of uh, slightly inside the camp because I made a film called Waking Ned about yeah. 25 years ago which did well and did well in America significantly. And that's now been a long, long, long journey, but that's now with a, a as um, Matthew Broad, Broadwick would say, a Broadway producer um, <laughs> who is turning it into a musical. And I can see, I can see it, you know, in my mind's eye, it does have, you know, I think, I think the, the ones that adapt well is they have sort of, you know, great moments that you can, you know, make into a, a, a dramatic, theatrically dramatic form. Mm. But they have to have a big theme. And I think Waking Ned, Ned's big theme is about dignity. Yeah. You know, it's about a community that is, you know, on its legs and run out of, you know, that everyone's old and, you know, it's, it's starting to sort of fall away. And what, and what their, again, nefarious act gives them as a community is, is sort of collective dignity. Mm. And I think that will therefore sustain um, people's, hook you know some emotional interest in in that if if and when it ever makes it onto the stage now this may seem like a crass comparison but it's only because it's been she's been on my podcast i was looking up to interview julie de cornu about tatain which you might not think there's a segue between that and musicals but <laughs> when i interviewed her i went to rewatch the film because i was trying to think i'm doing the junket i need to think of some angle yeah. to make this interview interesting and I realised that the first song and the last song were the same, but in two completely different styles. Okay. And then I charted all the songs in the that are in the film, and I realised, from my me as an as a subjective view and not objective truth, like, hold on a minute, these songs are all describing the metamorphosis of the character. Uh. So I presented that to her as my hypothesis, a big gamble, obviously, because she should have gone. No, no, they were just what we could afford in post. So that's the songs we've got. <laughs> you know, you can. I could easily have made that mistake. And she went, "Yeah, you're right," because I wrote every song in the screenplay because I needed the lyrics to do some heavy lifting, right? 
which which I know would be a producer's nightmare. And she said that herself. You know, you you say I want future islands in my screen in the film. Going, yeah, right. We'll see if we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I think I think actually the that, well, I saw that film in you know, in the cinema. Mm. And I was I you know it's just kind of hackneyed expression, but I was literally blown away. I I think I think two or things two or three times out loud. I went, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> you know. And it's and again talking about producer's nightmare. Yes, not only prescriptive need for certain IP you know, yeah. songs, but also moments where I can see in development, if there was any development, that any song thing, um, could we? Do you think we could just? You know, there's lots of moments of kind of like, oh my goodness, I think it's an amazing piece of work. I didn't even really like it. You know what I mean? It was one of the yeah. things I found deeply uncomfortable, but I couldn't stop recommending. Just amazing piece of work. Absolutely. Well, look. That brings us to the end of uh, your three films that Thank have you. impacted everything in your adult life. Thank you for sharing some great stories there. Do you want to just quickly remind people then? So Voxbot is, um, and I'm recording this now on the 26th of July, and we're yes. closing when on the Kickstarter? End of August. The the things to, if you want to know more, uh, more as in quite a lot more about my my unit, my Voxbox, mm. it's on, uh, it's voxbox.studio mm-hmm. is the website where everything's on. If you want to just have a look at the, you know, whether you're interested in buying it, it's um, on Kickstarter. You just type in Voxbox and you'll get to. Well, I, like I said, I'll put, I'll put a link directly to, to, to the, to the page to make life easier for people when, when they listen right. to this podcast. Uh, any, any film news you want, you could able to share anything in the pipeline? Yeah. I mean, a couple of uh, interesting things, um, which are, both are in the, in the public domain. So that's all right. I've, I've got a, um, uh, film and developing of the BFI, uh, which has got um, uh, Ben Wheatley EPing, and it's from uh, Gareth Tunley, who did The Ghoul, the BAFTA-nominated, BIFA-nominated filmmaker, and the nicest human being in the world. Indeed, so a, a past guest. He, he, we we, oh, we talked about The Ghoul on the podcast when it came oh, out. Oh, good. He's just wonderful. Um, and so that's called The Unraveling, uh, and we're looking to set that up for the first quarter next year. And again, I've, this is in public, yes, I'm developing with film four, a film called The Three Degrees, which is about the three footballers who joined West Bromwich Albion in the 78, 79 oh, wow. season, which is Laurie Cunningham, Brendan Batson and uh, um, Cyril Regis. And it's being directed by Clint Dyer and written by Roy Williams, OBE, who's just the most amazing playwright and screenwriter and um, executive produced by Lady Henry. What we're trying to do there is, is tell a, yeah, an entertaining, I mean, mm. Roy is a funny guy, Clint is a funny man, Lenny is a funny guy, yeah, an entertaining story, but what, it's, what it was really like for those three very young men, they're all in their you know, 20s, these are all very early 20s, mm. to be, through serendipity, to just find themselves in a very difficult place, you know, that, that Smithic at that point mm. for, for, for a person of colour. And they would, these 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 men were not social warriors. They weren't there to sort of, you know to try and change things. They just wanted to play football, and that's kind of what they came to. They realised that their only way of survival was to win, and they did. And it, it's a very funny, very um, fast pace of social change narrative film. It's not really a football film, although it's got some fantastic football in it. It's just about those three remarkable men and what they, you know, what they endured uh, with such grace. I live right by Leighton Orient football ground. And as I come out of my door to my left is a statue of Laurie Cunningham that was yeah. erected. Um, I mean, he was, I didn't know this till the statue was erected. First, the first British player to play in for Real Madrid 
but the first black yeah. player to play for England, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is which is amazing. Well, um, Cyril was, I think, the first black player to play for the under twenty threes. I think, yeah. and he got it was it was announced. Then the next day, he got a bullet in the post with a you know cut out letters mm. saying, "If you step onto Wembley." We'll put one in your knee. Yeah, and th- this was this is the bit I was, I've 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 since read about it myself, and uh, yeah, it's 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 horrifying to to horrifying. To... And, and you know, ho- there's still a lot of racism in football, as we know. Mm. And I'm not trying to sort of you know we're not we, we, this film does not try to change the world, but what they endured was you know thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand people from both from their own side mm. and from the opposing side screaming at them. And Zeke piling and throwing bananas at them, you know, on mass, it's, it, it, it is different now, yeah, and still horrible. But what they endured was like the wall of sound, and there's some fantastic moments of them in the tunnel coming out, where they're just looking at each other, going, you know, just let's stick together, play the game, win, and we we might be all right. But they were, you know, they were they were under a lot of physical pressure. Mm. Well, look, best of luck with that. Sounds amazing. Sounds like something I'd love to see. <laughs> Uh, best of luck with Voxbox and it just gives me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast well thank you for having me credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Palmetto Porch.com.